welcome to Atari Bytes, the show where we take a bite out of the story within a classic Atari 2600 game and see if that story bites us back. My name is Bill. This is episode 187. Thanks for listening. Welcome back, everybody. Man, oh man, oh man. I am excited. Mostly because I've had a lot of coffee today, but I'm actually recording early because my schedule tomorrow, which would be normally be my recording day, is going to be all messed up. Why, you ask? Well, because I am going to see classic, dare I say, iconic film, A Boy Named Charlie Brown, on the big screen. That's right, this 1969 classic, A Boy Named Charlie Brown, is coming back to the big screen in celebration of its 50th anniversary. I do another podcast, I may have mentioned it once or twice, called It's a Podcast, Charlie Brown, where I talk about Peanuts and Charlie Brown and Snoopy and all of that. So I am pumped, that's right, pumped, to see this movie on the big screen. I'm not sure I ever have. I watched the hell out of it on HBO as a kid when we got HBO, and this was one of the movies that they offered uh, day and night ad infinitum, and I ate it up, man. I was all over this movie. It's not my favorite of the five Peanuts movies, but uh, that's a discussion from my other podcast. Point is, I'm recording early this week because my Sunday schedule, because of that and some other things, is going to be all thrown off. So that's what I'm doing. Why don't we just get on with it then, huh? Gonna prove that the world is flat in his rocket ship, or else he'll go splat. He's Mad Mac Hughes. Mad Mac Hughes. Oh, man. Poor Mad Mike. As you know, the last episode you heard, I guess it'd be now two weeks ago from, as you're hearing this one, he was supposed to do a launch, like a thousand foot launch or something in his steam powered rocket, which is great, except when the heater that's supposed to heat the water to make the steam craps out. Space.com and other outlets reported the article I'm looking at is headlined, Mad Flat Earther Steam Rocket Launch Grounded by Bad Water Heater Bought on Craigslist. That's right. Craigslist is part of the conspiracy to silence the flat earthers. I made that part up. Or did I? Anyway, flat earth proponent, former limo driver, and amateur amateur rocketeer, Mad Mike Hughes planned to launch 5,000 feet into the air above the community of Amboy in California's Mojave Desert Monday, August 12th. But his homemade steam-powered rocket never got off the ground thanks to a faulty water heater that he bought off of Craigslist. The intended launch date now was to be Saturday, August 17th, which actually is the day I'm recording. I have not heard anything yet today, but I didn't hear anything about the last launch until a couple of days after it was over, or, you know, after it failed, uh, either. So that's not surprising to me. According to Hugh's publicist, let's just pause for a minute to consider the fact that Nutjob... Sorry. Mr. Nutjob. Uh, Mike Hughes has a publicist. Anyway, that guy's name is Darren Schuster. And he said the faulty heater that Hughes bought for 325 bucks couldn't heat the water to 400 degrees Fahrenheit, 200 degrees Celsius, the temperature required to create the steam to propel the rocket. He paid 50 bucks for the nose cone of the rocket, which he plans to launch off the back of a semi-truck that he was gifted. Schuster added that no one knows where the nose cone came from or what its original intent was, but Hughes modified it for its current purpose on the rocket. The launch, as I noted last week, is being sponsored by HUD, a casual dating app. Hughes is quoted 
quote, I appreciate the support, love, and excitement from everybody, and a delay will not stop my mission. The rocket is in place and needs a leak plugged up, so weekend is a go. Alright, let me do just a quick search, see if, uh, what's up with today's launch, if it happened. Side note, off the top of my head, I was trying to remember the name of the web of Mad Mike's website, and I thought it was like rocketman.com, so I typed that into Google, and it doesn't take me to Mad Mike, it takes me to a page, the rocketman.com page, where we see a woman with what appears to be a jetpack on her back, but it's not. It's a beverage delivery system. Backpack beverage dispensing equipment. Largest producer worldwide, superior quality and warranty used for retail sales, sampling, and hot and cold beverages in over 50 countries. You can click on a thing to make equipment purchases. Rocketman Walking Vendor Management. If Rocketman Walking Vendor Management would like to sponsor this podcast, Email me at ataribytes2016 at gmail.com. Anyway, I guess Mad Mike Hughes is where I was trying to go. So I'm there now. The last update appears to have been the July 24th Science Channel Greenlights Homemade. And then it cuts off. I assume homemade rock is what that was supposed to say. No real-time updates on here about anything. Just uh, promoting him. There's a Newsweek article from two days ago. Well, let's check out the Facebook page. August 16th, yesterday, as I'm recording. Note to self, when launching yourself in your homemade rocket, pad the seat inside the cockpit using bubble wrap, as seen. This will absorb most of the impact when you fall back to Earth and hit the ground. Alright, look, I'm no rocket scientist, but if you're 5,000 feet up and you're falling, I have a hard time believing that, you know, the leftover bubble wrap from your last... Garfield coffee mug order from Amazon is going to absorb the impact of you crashing into the round. But that's just me. August 14th, the movie has launched. The first reviews are in, and they're great. Thanks to everyone leaving reviews. They're super important. I think I looked the other day. The Rocket Man movie is up there on Amazon if you want to watch, but if I remember right, it was some ridiculous price that there's no way in hell I was going to pay to watch. I already got burned on that stupid biography that I paid $4 for and couldn't finish because it was just awful. You can get it other places too, but Rocket Man, Mad Mike's Mission to Prove the Flat Earth is up there on Amazon Prime. You can rent it in HD for 6 bucks. You can buy it in HD for $12.99. If you're okay with SD, you can rent it for $5.99. Same price to buy it, $12.99. I didn't want to watch this in bad enough to pay $6 for it. I mean, I get it. I do Mad Mike updates every week, but I'm, I would rather just have my $6. If any of you wants to watch this movie, um, you know, throw yourself on that sword. For goodness sakes, wrap yourself in bubble wrap first, and then let us know what you thought of the movie. So the point is, supposedly there was supposed to be a launch today. I'm hoping by the time I record again, there will be, uh, there will be some news about what I guess is not actually the flight to prove the Earth is flat, because it won't be high enough, probably, but the flight to prove that he can fly? I don't know. Speaking of the movie, there was an article on August 11th in the Rapid City Journal about the filmmakers who are from Rapid City, how they came to make this movie. Michael Lynn and Toby Brusso, they filmed and produced the 90-minute comic adventure drama. Comic, hold on, comic adventure drama documentary. All right, they're just kind of covering all their bases, I guess. Lynn is a director, feature editor, and writer whose credits include such independent films as Until Forever, the Michael Boyum story, Into His Arms, and the thriller Imprint. 
Brusso is a photojournalist, marketer, and author, and South Dakota's first FAA 333 exempt drone pilot. Okay. Rocket Man documents one of Hughes' one of Hughes's rocket launches. His long-term goal is to build a rocket powerful enough to propel him 62 miles into space, higher than commercial aircraft fly, so he can see for himself whether the Earth is flat. They spent three weeks in the California desert filming him and his small crew as they attempted to launch a homemade steam-powered rocket. Building the rocket costs thousands of dollars. Could use some specifics there, I think. Hughes has some sponsors, like the HUD casual dating app, app, as we've learned. And he also forages for parts and incorporates some found objects into his rocket. Unlike reality TV, Rocket Man isn't scripted or rehearsed. Instead, the filmmakers let the events unfold and chronicled what happened. Foibles, mishaps, success, and all. The fact that we didn't die is a very large accomplishment, Brousseau said. Hughes' Rocket Man story also has a unique tie to South Dakota. The first flat earth society was in South Dakota in Hot Springs. All right. wonder if that's something you put on your license plate. The flat earth state or something. Now, Lynn does extend an olive branch to the, uh, you know, the flat earth group. A lot of people believe in things without evidence. On faith, we need to know how to talk civilly. Debates on social media get nowhere, Lynn said. We need to observe, listen, and don't be hateful. Well, it is a nice message. But, that said, Mad Mike is still a goofball. How do I know that? Well, for one reason, there was an article in theconversation.com that broke down how far he's likely to get. There's a long dissertation here about the basics of rocket flight. The mathematics behind the speed of a rocket launch can achieve was developed in the 1890s by a Russian school teacher called Konstantin Shulskovsky. His equation calculates a speed or velocity change based on how much of the rocket's total mass is fuel. The more fuel you have, the faster you can go, and how fast it can burn this fuel. And it's the same equation that we still use today. Orbital flight is a combination of altitude and horizontal velocity. To get in orbit around Earth, you need two things. First, you're going to be traveling fast enough, horizontally, to get to the curvature of the Earth before gravity pulls you to the ground. And you also want as little atmosphere as possible, or the enormous drag force from the air will both reduce your speed and heat your object up. To reach the right speeds, say 17,500 miles per hour, you have to use very specific fuels and engine shapes. Hughes is using water itself as a fuel. The problem with water is that it doesn't boil quickly. It has a high specific heat capacity, meaning it essentially takes too much energy to turn it into steam quickly enough to be able to generate a high thrust. This article points out that we don't know the specific dimensions for Hughes's rocket, going by his description of 95 to 100 gallons of water, superheated, leaving the rocket at the speed of sound, and weighing around 1,800 pounds to calculate his potential maximum altitude using Choloskovsky's rocket equation. Uh, there's some more math here, and then they say basically, the maximum height he can reach is just over 2 kilometers, assuming he launches straight up, which is based on basic equations of motion ignoring air resistance. It's a respectable height to reach on a homemade engine, but Mount Whitney, which is close to Hughes' launch site in California, has a peak of almost 4.5 kilometers. Neither altitude is anywhere close to the edge of space. It's not even high enough to see the curvature of the Earth, which requires a height of about 10 kilometers. Hughes wants funding to enable him to reach the Kármán line in his next flight. Reversing our calculations, we can estimate that he would need a maximum velocity, a minimum velocity change of 1.4 kilometers per second to do that, and would require his rocket to hold at least 7,500 U.S. gallons, which is not easy because you need to have a, a fuel tank with a volume of 30 cubic meters or the carrying capacity of two long wheel base fans. The increased 
size of the fuel tank and supporting structure would then increase the final weight, which in turn would require even more fuel. While Hughes's current launch attempt may well succeed, the chances of a rocket with a 30 cubic meter fuel tank full of water taking off is close to impossible. At least he would avoid the catastrophe of the fuel exploding on the launch pad, which is a concern for more serious rocket launches. Commercial ventures such as Falcon Rockets and Blue Origin have put a lot of money into research, and if they could use something as cheap as water to launch, then they would do so. So, in summary, Hughes isn't going to make it anywhere near high enough to see the curvature of the Earth. But the adrenaline rush will probably more than make up for it. And then this uh, writer wishes Hughes the best. I don't agree with his beliefs, his politics, or his distrust of science, but applauds his spirit and attitude. And I think we can all kind of agree with that. He's a nut job. If, and I've said before, I'm not sure he really, uh, his politics, maybe he believes that. And I have some issues with his politics. But the flat earth thing, I'm not convinced that, at all that he actually believes in the flat earth. I think he just likes having the backing of the flat earth people because he wants their money. Maybe he does. I don't know. And regardless, I don't, whether I buy that or not, I, you know, I'm not out there building a rocket, shooting myself up in the air. He's got guts. I'll give him that. So yeah, you got to respect that to some extent. Gonna prove that the world is flat in his rocket ship or else he'll go splat. He's mad, Mike Hughes. Mad Mike Hughes. I'm not sure when in relation to this episode going out, this other thing happened, but I'll go ahead and mention it now. I recently showed up on the Pie Factory podcast. I was invited there. I didn't just wander in. That would be weird. I was invited to come on the show along with Ferd and Kevin from Please Stand By. And we played a game. They took a break from the usual format of the show in celebration of Pie Factory's 100th episode. Congratulations on that. And we played a game. It was sort of a like a game show but not really and it was like a quiz game but not really it was sort of odd but it was a lot of fun Uh, a lot of fun to be had a lot of funny jokes a lot of weirdness which is really everything you want from a podcast so that episode might be already out as you're hearing this one so go look for that pie factory is a show you should be listening to anyway if you're not or the episode may be coming out soon so you should be listening to pie factory anyway you know in anticipation of that 100th episode benchmark. Again, congratulations, Pie Factory. This next bit isn't really news, but it's an article I found a while and then forgot to mention. Most of us listening to this podcast are probably of a certain age where we remember what a seismic meteor it was in 1985 when Coca-Cola said, hey, you know this soda pop you've enjoyed for generations? Yeah, we're going to change it and make it taste different. Here you go. It's going to be awesome. It's called New Coke. You'll love it. And people lost their minds. There was rioting in the streets, and Francois Coca-Cola was burned in effigy in, you know, in the courtyards of America. And, by the way, Francois Coca-Cola doesn't really exist, but how cool would it be if he did? Anyway, the point is, it was crazy time when they took regular Coke away and made it uh, New Coke. I kind of remember New Coke. My impression at the time was that it pretty much tasted like Pepsi. And I was a Pepsi fan, so that didn't bother me. I I sort of swung both ways, but I leaned more towards Pepsi. I have, since then, I I don't drink much soda now at all, really. uh, Except occasionally, if it comes with the value meal. 
if I happen to be eating fast food, which I try not to do much either. But when I do, I tend to lean more towards Coke now. Actually, truth be told, I'm a Dr. Pepper man anyway. But I saw an article titled, New Coke Didn't Fail, It Was Murdered. There's an article in Mother Jones by Tim Murphy. came out actually in July. Prompted by, if you're a Stranger Things fan, I'm not giving anything away here because it was newsworthy before the season three of Stranger Things came out on Netflix and it really doesn't affect anything with the plot. So I'm not giving anything away to say that uh, the third season takes place in 1985 and you know I'm sure it's product placement big time, but it, it works into the story of the show, it works into the setting, I should say, of the show and uh, the time period. So the kids are drinking new Coke. One of the kids named Lucas uh, takes a big drink and says, it's delicious. And the five other kids stare at him in horror, as they put it in this article. For more than three decades, the article says, New Coke has been held up as the bad idea by which all other bad ideas are measured. Do a quick Google search for the worst idea since New Coke. You're all doing it now, aren't you? And you'll find an encyclopedia of face palms, Handmaid's Tale-themed Pinot Noir, Mint Chocolate Toothpaste, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Side note, yeah, I was not blown away when I saw Crystal Skull in the theater. I didn't hate it, but I wasn't blown away. But then I discovered when I watched it on TV, you know, and I got the DVD, because of course I did. I had the other movies on DVD. Why wasn't I going to get this one? I was perfectly entertained It for some reason. It felt fine. It was fun on uh, at home on my TV size screen. I don't know why. Maybe because uh, it didn't cost me as much or something. I don't know. Anyway, on the 10th anniversary of New Coke's introduction, the company CEO, Roberto Gaizuta, told employees sounding more than a bit like Churchill after Dunkirk that what happened was, quote, a blunder and a disaster and it will forever be. Apparently the history of why they made this change so abruptly in 1985 is a little murky, but they were worried because although Coke was selling fine in restaurants where most of the time you're either you're offered a coke or pepsi you don't you're either offered coke or you're offered pepsi you don't get to choose so it was doing fine in restaurants but it wasn't doing so great on grocery store shelves it was losing out to pepsi so they decided they needed to do something and as i said people went crazy so this author's point is the thing to remember about how mad people got is if coke was really as great people were still loving coke as much as in hindsight, we seem to think they did, sales wouldn't have been going down. Coca-Cola was trying to respond to that, and Coca-Cola was not particularly good at changing with the times. Diet Pepsi premiered in 1964, but it took 18 years for Diet Coke to come around. Sugar-Free Tab came along, but it came with a warning label informing drinkers that it was linked to bladder cancer and rot and rats. Apparently, the new Coke formula came out of the efforts to develop new Coke, and by 84, they decided to move ahead with a switch. Coca-Cola did taste tests where it performed pretty well, the new version beating the old version pretty consistently. Even in the South, apparently in the Southern United States, Coca-Cola had always been particularly popular, but New Coke was winning even down there. Things went pretty well after it came out, at least initially. People seemed okay with the switch. At worst, people were saying, well, it's fine. But because that's boring, the media started looking for people who hated it. So then the bottler started complaining, and people kind of piled on, and eventually basically just developed a legend as being awful. So then it brought back the old Coke in July of 85, called it Coke Classic. They still call it Coke Classic? Or is it, by now, is it just Coke again? 
I know when the Stranger Things Season 3 came out, they did release, and I think it's in the article here somewhere, 50,000 cans, something like that, of quote-unquote new Coke. Uh, I didn't pick any up. Uh, if any of you did, what'd you think after all these years? Was it still good? Was it still bad? What'd you think? When you were playing your Atari back in 85, were you drinking new Coke? Were you drinking old Coke? Were you doing a line of Coke? Yeah, we're all friends here. You can tell us. Let me know. All right. I said, not really news, just something interesting that I saw. All right, let's get on to this week's game. This week's game is... Hi, I'm John Madden. These guys at CBS Video Games have a terrific free offer that'll really jolt you joystick jock. They've come up with a game that's so challenging, they've named it after me. Madness. They don't dare sell it, but you can get it free. Here's how. Buy the two exciting games, Wizard of War and Gorp, and they'll send you Madness free. Now take it from a guy who knows a tough challenge when he sees one. Or three in this case. Wizard of War is tough. Gorf is tough. They'll have you on the edge of your seat and keep you there. But Madness will psych you out completely. And it's free. Just buy Wizard and Gorf. Send in the fun voucher from each box with your name and address and your cash receipt. And we'll send you Madness free. And when you get it, you're really going to get it. I want it! Where'd he come from? That's right. Madness. Whoops. I mean, Wizard of War. Sorry, John Madden. Wizard of War is a game, the Atari version, is a game from CBS Electronics. It went to the Atari in 81, based on the 1980 Midway arcade game. And that's what we're playing this week. So we're doing Wizard of War. Now I just need Dwarf. And I can get my copy of Madness. Be standing by my mailbox. Wizard of War is pretty straightforward. It's a maze game. One weird thing, which still messed me up when I was setting up to play today, even though I had already read the instruction manual, you're using the joystick controller, but you're using the right controller for one-player games, not the left controller. I don't know why. B difficulty is for beginners. A difficulty is setting the switch to A gets you extra sneaky warlings. Uh, to be honest, I'm not sure which difficulty level I was playing on. You can select a one or two player version, although it doesn't appear there's different games. Apparently it's just either one or two players. Those are the options you get. At the beginning of the game, you hear the National Anthem of War, W-O-R. I wonder if this is a subtle attempt to you know, make a political statement about war, W-A-R. Oh, we'll change the spelling, and then it'll be like a whole different thing. So the game will work on two levels. Be like, uh, it's a game on a mysterious planet or country or something called war, W-O-R, but it's also a commentary on, you know, fighting and battle and all that stuff. I don't know. But I do know you shoot a lot of things. Note, according to the manual, never remove your video game cartridge from the console unless the power is turned off. Welcome to the mystical kingdom of war, W-O-R. You've been placed in command of an elite squadron of warriors Assign the task of outwitting the sinister wizard of war. As you descend into his diabolical dungeons, you will encounter deadly warlings. Hold on. Why are you trying to outwit the wizard by going into his dungeons? Why don't you just go get him? Anyway, you encounter deadly warlings and maybe even the wizard himself. You're only... Oh, okay. Well, that explains it then, I guess. Your only weapons are your trusty laser, your radar scanner, and your agility and cunning. You will need them as you attempt to beat the wizard and earn the title of warlord. Prepare now and then let the battle begin. The object is to accumulate points by destroying the warlings as you, uh, that you encounter as you pass through the numerous dungeon mazes. In the two-player version, you can work with or compete against another warrior commander. 
I didn't try the two-player version, but that sounds kind of cool. You begin each game with a squadron of three warriors. Only one may enter at a time. Push up on your joystick and a warrior will move into the dungeon from the entrance below. Use the joystick to maneuver through the maze. Press the button to fire the laser. It only fires in the direction that your warrior is facing. You have an unlimited supply of ammunition, but after a war warrior fires a shot, he cannot reshoot until that bullet makes contact with either a whirling or a wall. Wait, you said it's a laser. What's this about bullets? That's inartful writing if you ask me. At 10,000 points, you get awarded a, a one extra warrior. Each dungeon is filled with different kinds of whirlings. The whirlings' one purpose in life is to destroy your warrior. If you're a warrior and they're warlings, aren't they like your off offspring or something? How weird is that? Anyway, they will try to shoot the warrior down or devour him. As each dungeon is cleared, a new dungeon takes its place, filled with faster, nastier, and craftier warlings. I bet the writer of this manual was proud of that line. Faster, nastier, and craftier. The species of warlings are Burr Wars, they're blue, and they appear at the beginning of each dungeon. The Gar Wars are yellow, and they're invisible, but do materialize for a few seconds from time to time. Thor Wars are red devils, particularly nasty. Not only invisible most of the time, they're extra fast and tricky. In the first dungeon, Gar Wars and Thor Wars will appear only after all six Burr Wars are destroyed. In the following dungeons, Gar Wars and Thor Wars appear earlier on. As you advance into more and more dungeons, you may be faced with any combination of warlings scampering about the maze at the same time. The Warlock appears in the second dungeon, and he's the Wizard's Winged Beast, appearing after the last warling is shot. Warlocks will try to devour you before he escapes from the dungeon. Shooting Warlock doubles the point values for all warlings shot in the next dungeon. And then you have the Wizard of War. After Warlock escapes or a shot, the wizard himself may engage you in battle. Who looks like a white chess piece. This is a fight to the finish, with the wizard teleporting from one position to another, hurling lightning bolts in your direction. If you're sharp enough to stay alive, consider yourself a warlord. The radar scanner located below each dungeon depicts the location and movement of all beings in that dungeon except for your warrior. This holds true for both visible and invisible warlings, as well as Warlock and the wizard. The radar scanner is invaluable in keeping track of fast-moving warlings. There are escape doors located on opposite sides of each dungeon. Simply stepping into one will automatically beam your warrior to the other side. Their doors open and close every three seconds. Be careful though, warlings have a habit of using them too, especially when they're invisible. Occasionally two warlings will travel together as a cluster. Does two really constitute a cluster? It's more like just a pair, or a duo. Anyway. This gives the appearance of only one warling. They might randomly split up and reunite throughout a particular dungeon. When they travel in this manner, a single shot will destroy them both. But don't get too confident. Depending on how advanced the dungeon is, a cluster might be replaced by two separately traveling Gar Wars or Thor Wars. The game ends when your last warrior succumbs to the supreme power of the wizard's, force, uh, of the wizard's forces and is destroyed. Two players may travel through, dungeon, uh, may travel through each dungeon at the same time. Both joystick controllers are used in this version. The right one controls the yellow warrior, and the left one controls the blue warrior. Players may work together to destroy whirlings, or they may fight against each other. Each whirling destroyed by an opposing warrior is worth a thousand points to the survivor. Point values range from 100 bucks for the Burr Wars to a thousand points for warriors in the two-player version, 2,500 points for the Wizard of War. Strategy hints. Pick a safe moment to put your warrior into play as soon as possible. Otherwise, after 20 seconds, he'll be ejected into the dungeon, which may leave him in a bad position. 
Learn to use your radar scanner, rely on it to locate invisible warlings and track their movements. Don't shoot without having a plan to hit something, otherwise you may not be able to shoot when you have to. This cartridge came with a limited 90 day warranty, that's good to know. And that is how you play Wizard of War. As I said, the Wizard of War arcade game was released in 1980 by Midway. The game was poured to the Atari 8-bit family, the Commodore 64, the Atari 2600, and the Atari 5200, and renamed the Incredible Wizard for the Bally Astrocade. The original cartridge came with a cash prize offer to the first person to complete the game. Did anybody win this? Did you win it? Can you loan me some money? The game was moderately successful in the arcade. Electronic games called the Atari 8-bit version outstanding, similarly praising the arcade version, stating that while one person in competitive two-player two-person play was excellent, two people cooperating was a unique playing experience. Denny Goodman of Creative Computing, Video, and Arcade Games called The Incredible Wizard for the Astrocade an incredibly good replica. Wizard of War is included in the compilations Midway Arcade Treasures 2 from 2004 and Midway Arcade Origins 2012. In reviewing the Atari 2600 version, Atari Times commented, Let me just preface this by saying that I'm very surprised no one else has yet reviewed this game. This was in 2008. I can't think of another game from back in the day that I played or enjoyed more than Wizard of War. Granted, until I was 12, I thought the word war was spelled with an O, but that's all by the by. One of the coolest things I find is that when you have semi-cooperative play, two players such as Blue or Yellow Orange Man, you can compete for score, attempt to cooperatively destroy all monsters on screen, or have an all-out frag fest, which the game rewards with one of the highest point values, killing the other player. I can't tell you how many times I've shot my buddy in the early rounds if they're the blue player because they look so much like the damn Burr Wars. A feature that is common in many Atari games that works particularly well here is the ability to only fire one shot at a time. You can't fire another shot until your current one hits something, be it a wall, a monster, or another player. This is fine if you are pointed right at one of the previously mentioned things, but if you are facing a long haul and suddenly something comes up behind you, you may very well be quickly losing a life. Graphics are probably the low point of the game. The flicker is incessant, almost seizure-inducing levels. I think I commented on this in the field report. The more creatures on screen, the less stable their being seems to be. Everything is one color and not very well represented. It's not a terrible thing, just nothing to scream about. The warlocks look like a butterfly, and the wizard looks something like a half-moon face teleporting around the screen. Also, for some reason, I always, I always think the Thor Wars are female. They're pink, by stereotype. The sound is extremely minimal, typical bleeps and blips, which worked fine. The music is a simple loop that speeds up, reminiscent, though not directly a ripoff, of the Jaws theme. It's gameplay where the game really shines. The only negative comment I have is that there isn't much level variation. The controls are simple. I do occasionally have trouble going around corners. Yeah, I had that problem too. If you're not in the right spot, the game will make you walk further down the hall you're in and sometimes right into that oncoming bit of death. Also, I didn't do a lot of research on this, but apparently, and you guys all probably know all this already, I think I'm an idiot, but evidently Atari Age says that there's a reboot called Wizard of War 2 The Arena. And I kind of poked around a little bit. It sounds like it was popular. If any of you is familiar with that, let me know. All right. Well, after the break, we're off to see the wizard, the wonderful wizard of war. Okay, but I better get a brain out of the deal. Mmm, brains. Look, I'm no military strategist. 
but it seems to me if you're going to war and you're a wizard, first of all, why don't you just cast a spell of go away and don't bother me? That takes care of the war part. But assuming that you want to play fair, you maybe don't go into battle with those pointy hats. Eh, you know, in the, the long robe, maybe could trip you up. I'm thinking you, you trade it in for some nice camo, uh, maybe a beret, uh, or, or you could go no hat. You know, it's up to you. If it's sunny out, though, maybe a hat's good. You know, protect your head. Uh, you know, watch out for melanoma, people. It's nothing to shit around with. All right, let's get on with the game. Wizard of War. Here we go. Should I stand? This, that's a creepy, disturbing anthem, by the way. This game is super creepy. The music is creepy. These creature things. They're kind of strobing a little bit. I really hope I don't have a seizure. Um, but they're kind of marching, and they're sort of dark and creepy. And that fire thing. It's not really a fire thing, but it kind of looks like a fire thing that keeps disappearing. I don't know why you have a maze. It could just be a big empty field that you're walking around in. I just lost two guys in succession because I was talking to you people. Man. Alright, I'm going to try this again because I was too busy talking. I don't know. The little radar thing at the bottom seems sort of superfluous. They don't tell you anything. It doesn't seem to tell you anything until the creatures are already right there on the screen and you can see them. Oh, no way, I shot first. Stop with the fast-paced music. Nothing's really happening. Ooh, now something's happening. No fair. I even knew he was there. Man, I'm stipe suck. Ha! Take that, invisible dude. Alright, next wave. Got him. Oh. That was dumb. I just basically ran up in front of the monster and stood there. Hey, shoot me. The disappearing uh, escape exit things on each side of the screen, that's kind of cool. Alright, well, I'll save the rest of my comments, I guess, for the meat of this episode. So, uh, back to you in the studio. Hey, Atari fans, this is Michael, one of the hosts of the Atari XEGS Card by Card podcast. Join Bill, David, Kieran, and myself as we review cartridge-based games for the Atari's last answer, the 8-bit gaming system, as well as delve deep into their history. Kieran will also introduce everyone to the UK's budget games. You can listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music, Player FM, or from our website at xegs8bit.com. That's xegs, the number 8, bit.com. Hey, it's me, Bill, your host, the guy you've been listening to this whole episode. Do you enjoy the stories I write and read to you every week on this podcast, but you feel like you just need a break from my voice? I get it. My family does sometimes, too. 
here's an option. Some of the stories from the show are now collected in a volume titled Misery Banana, Very Short Stories Inspired by Old Games and Odd Thoughts. You can order it wherever you like to order books. I hope you'll check it out. Thanks. So here's the thing about Wizard of War. It's super simple, but it's super compelling. Um, I think if it wasn't so darn creepy with the music and that spooky anthem and the weird sort of gothic look of the sprites in the game, I, I wouldn't be as impressed. I, I think it's just the mood and the atmosphere that gets me more than anything else. Um, the radar screen at the bottom is dumb. You don't need that. The flicker is potentially seizure-inducing, if you ask me, but... Um, you know, you limit your play, I guess, if that's a worry. Uh, that's not so bad. I give big props to the atmosphere. I think the play is fine. The gameplay is fine. They don't try to overcomplicate things, uh, which I appreciate, because a lot of games made that mistake. So, it's a good one. I never played the arcade version. I, my sense is that the arcade version is pretty awesome, and the home version is good, from what I can tell. So, I agree. It's good. Alright, is that good? Are we good? Is everything good? Alright, let's move on. It's story time on Atari Bites. Yes, it's story. Story, story, story time. With Bill. This week's story is uh, an anthem that I wrote. It's called the National Anthem of War, W-A-R, because I can spell. Spread there before us, behold this great land. Power is great, if only we'll take it. Embrace the good to be had, fear not the bad. For the world can be bad as we wish to make it. War is not just soldiers in battle, though that's fun as can be. Fearing just human enemies leaves much to chance. Wars also for vaccines and climate and things hard to see. Fight all you can. Embrace the romance. Race, sex, ethnicity, religion too. Hate, words, money are all great weapons. Tired of fighting? Push on through. Be super loud and they'll listen to us. Sure, we sound obnoxious and hateful. Like it that way. But they just don't understand. The way to come together is to push people away. Doesn't make sense, but we've no other plan. Hey, where are you going? Come back, coward. Don't leave us alone. There goes the key to all our power. All our power. All our power. Well, damn. And that's our show. Thanks to Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com for Creative Commons' use of his songs, Reformat, Take a Chance, and Pinball Spring. Thanks to Mike Mann for the Mad Mike Hughes theme. Thanks to Sean Courtney for the Storytime theme. You can find Atari Bytes on many podcatchers, which you know because you're listening to one. But to help this show succeed and grow even more listeners, you should, like the wizards of old, use your ancient skills at Review Alchemy to divine out of the zeros and ones that sustain us 
some magic words of praise for this podcast in a review over there on Apple Podcasts so that we may conjure up more listeners. Hopefully, there will be very little warring. Email the show at ataribytes2016 at gmail.com. Like the show on our Facebook page. Follow the show on Twitter at ataribytes. Or follow me personally at Carnival of Glee. Also, look us up on Instagram. And don't forget, you can call us too. Don't worry, I won't answer the phone. But you can leave a, me- a voicemail message about the show, about Atari games, about any damn thing you want by calling 563-265-1978. Also, please consider supporting the show financially by making a donation on the Atari Bytes Patreon page. Changes are coming to the Patreon project. New things are happening soon. Uh, so now is a good time to get on board if you've been considering uh, kicking in a little bit um, to help support the show, uh, hosting fees and all that kind of stuff that go into producing a podcast. You can also pick up uh, Still, go play some old games they've missed you, shirts and mugs at the AB underscore pod underscore store on Zazzle.com. Changes to that store will be coming later in the year as well. Check out my new website, speaking of changes, www.carnivalofgleecreations.com. There's all sorts of stuff over there. Links to this podcast, links to my other podcast, information about uh books that I've written and links to where to buy them. All sorts of stuff. Speaking of the Patreon project, uh, shout out to my current patrons, Michael Tyler and G-Ray Defender. You guys are awesome. Thanks for hanging in there. You stick with me. Like I said, changes are coming. Bring some friends on board and we'll have a big old party or something. I kind of lost the thread there, but it's going to be cool. Hey, do you love Snoopy? Do you know someone who does? Yes. Yes, you do. Check out my other podcast. It's a podcast, Charlie Brown where on the 15th of every month, a new episode come, comes out where we talk about anything and everything in the Peanuts universe. The Peanuts comic strip, the characters, Snoopy, Linus, Charlie Brown, Schroeder, Woodstock, everybody. Uh, the TV specials, the movies, the merchandise, the mind of Charles Schultz himself, related projects. We've had playwrights. We've had author-illustrators who've done projects in and around the Peanuts universe. We've had Peanuts historians. I just recently talked to a guy who was the voice of Charlie Brown in a bunch of the TV specials. You can hear all of that stuff over there on on It's a Podcast, Charlie Brown. Thanks in advance for listening. Next time on Atari Bytes, we're playing Slot Racers, which you have to pronounce correctly. Otherwise, it sounds like Slot Racers, which would be a whole different game. Imagine the homebrew for that. Anyway, so until next time, Go play some old games. They've missed you. Thank you.